0: Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Summitry Project. You can uh, join us at uh, the website, which is globalsummitryproject.com. And there, you will find uh, the Global Summitry e-journal. You will also find a link to our blog, Rising Brixham. And uh, a, uh, various links to our most recent uh, research projects the China and the West Dialogue, and Agenda 2030, and uh, Strengthening uh, the G20. And finally, uh, you will see that we have our three podcast series uh, posted there the Now series the Summit Dialogue series, and uh, the Shaking the Global Order series. And finally, uh, you will also find our new um, YouTube channel for Global Summetry. And there, there are uh, various interviews with experts and former officials on uh, the global order. It's my great uh, pleasure today to bring into the virtual studio our colleague, uh, Chong Li. Chong Li has just uh, published his newest uh, book entitled uh, Middle Class Shanghai Reshaping U.S.-China Engagement. We uh, were excited uh, to bring in uh, Chong Li into the virtual studio to explore the influence uh, of the rise of the middle class in China, but most particularly the rise of the Shanghai middle class. This was a real opportunity uh, to explore with Cheng li uh, Chinese foreign policy from a unique position, the transformation of political leaders, generational change, the Chinese middle class, and technological development in China. Uh, Chung Li is the director of the John L. Thornton China Center and a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. He is also a distinguished fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, and he is a director of the National Committee on U.S. China Relations. In 1985, Chung Li came to the United States where he received a master's in Asian studies from the University of California, Berkeley, and a doctorate in political science from Princeton University. Cheng Li has written extensively on uh, China and Chinese foreign policy. So we were quite excited to bring Cheng Li in to discuss his newest book, Middle Class Shanghai. So let me introduce him to you all. So, Cheng Li, congratulations! By the way, on the publication of your newest book, uh, "Middle Class Shanghai: Reshaping U.S.-China Engagement." Uh, and by the way, I take it it's being publi- It's being published by Brookings, so yes. that um, people can f- locate it there online uh, and order it. Um, so what, what do you see now, looking back at the book, uh, what are the principal goals that you had in writing this book? Well,
1: the thesis of my book uh, runs contrary to uh, prevailing views in Washington regarding the failure of U.S. Uh, engagement policy toward China. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there are several main components of uh, these negative views, Uh, let me very quickly mention them. First is viewing China as a monolithic entity with no distinction between state and society. Mm -hmm. The so-called whole of society threat uh, by the previous administration and so far still um, have some influence uh, in Washington, DC. And number two, viewing the middle class, the Chinese middle class as a political ally of the party state without recognizing the, di- the dynamism and the diversity of this new uh, economic force. And it's uh, arguably transitory political role or transitory nature of its political role. And finally, viewing the uh, large number of PRC students and scholars in the US as spies uh, being weaponized. This is a term uh, frequently used by some politicians uh, in Washington. So the students are being used or weaponized by Beijing and therefore assuming bilateral educational exchange exchanges uh, benefit only China and may undermine American supremacy and American security. Now, the principal goals in writing this book, you know, uh, to challenge these distorted view, what I believe distorted views. Uh, in, uh, in particular, the book argues it is premature to announce that the uh, US engagement policy with China under the past eight presidents, prior to Trump, uh, has failed. According to my Brookings colleague, Jeff Bader, also a friend of yours, who served as the senior director for Asia in the Obama White House uh, National Security Council, he uh, wrote a few years ago, I quote here East Asia has avoided major military conflicts since the 1970s. After the United States fought three wars in the preceding four decades, uh, originating in East Asia, with a quarter of a million lost American life. This is not, no small achievement. So, in beta's view, abandon the engagement policy will likely enhance the risk of war in the region. Now, like many others, I'm deeply worried that the United States and China are moving toward destructive confrontation the scenario that uh, Jeff Bader uh, was worried a few years ago. So in a way, my book is a humble effort to provide a different angle based on the culture front or from the perspective of people-to-people relations. Uh, the book joins on empirical research in the realms of uh, higher education, avant-garde art, architecture, and the legal profession in middle-class Shanghai. Now the book emphasizes similarities rather than differences between Americans and Chinese people. The book represents or presents the possibility that the development of China's uh, class structure and the cost of culture exemplified and led by Shanghai could provide a force for reshaping US-China engagement, uh, the subtitle of my book. Alan? Uh, I
0: wanted to I want to ask you some more uh, about the, the, the issue of the middle class. But before I get there, because you raised Jeff Bader, I thought it's probably worthwhile just raising this. Of course, you're aware that former Democratic officials, now Biden officials, namely right. Kurt Campbell yeah. and Jake Sullivan, have declared. And in particular, Kurt Campbell has declared the era of engagement is dead. Um, and in fact, in their in their joint writing uh, a couple of years ago, uh, they talked about the replacement of engagement policy with competition without catastrophe. Is that how you think, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, view uh, the relationship? No, I
1: think the Chinese still think that the engagement is not over. And uh, I think that I also want to mention, many Americans do not agree with the Caesar's engagement is over. It's dead. I mean, this is including both uh, Democrats and Republicans. And uh, uh, I think that also includes some people in the administration. So I think that I was actually surprised to hear that engagement is over. What do you call? I understand the competition, I think that's a, that's a, a reasonable, I think uh, uh, it's actually probably to a certain extent is wise policy. Although I'm very cynical about the endless competition, which really you should, cannot control, it may go to the uh, destructive confrontation. I mean, because you do not uh, know how to control that process. That's precisely what Dr. Kissinger said, this is endless uh, uh, competition, uh, in the era of AI is extremely dangerous. And uh, not only just uh, uh, the, uh, uh, some people in the US, and uh, also I mentioned about Chinese leaders have some concern, but uh, even the American allies, uh, for example, the German chancellor, even British prime minister had a uh, doubt about the, this kind of Cold War kind of thinking. I mean, uh, uh, they think that, uh, I mean, European countries are not really for this kind of uh, confrontation. Now, they are concerned about China's aggressive behaviors. Uh, they certainly uh, share the values about the issues about Hong Kong and Xinjiang, et cetera. But it's not just uh, 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 engaged in a Cold War uh, like like a uh, style uh, confrontation with China. So the problem is if you do not call the engagement, you want the disengagement, you want decoupling, mm-hmm. I mean, is that what we talk about? And is that possible? You only select the things you, you like, but then completely ignore the other side? This is not a diplomacy. Diplomacy, you should uh, talk about that. You're also concerned about the other uh, perspective, what other can gain. So this kind of things really enhance the zero-sum game mentality, uh, which is really moving towards a very dangerous future. Uh, uh So I hope that uh, uh the administration the officials uh will revisit that uh, that notion because I understand that the whole china strategy is under review. it will not be uh you know uh, uh, uh finalized uh it's not written yet. uh so I hope that uh, that uh, engagement may be a different kind of version uh, uh, uh you know different kind of uh, 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 approach. But not completely threw out of the window, uh, uh, that uh, could be uh, could, uh, not only advance American interests, but actually hurt American interests, uh, hurt American software power.
0: Well, I, and I'll have a few more questions before the end of our our discussion on on this. But I wanted to get back to the book because, I wanted you to identify as, you know, how you understood and how it filtered then into the book, what the middle class was, and in particular, what the Shanghai middle class was and is today, so that people better understand the book. Well, uh, I'm
1: glad you um, immediately asked that question. The middle class in China or in Shanghai is a diverse lot the middle class is inherently flexible concept everywhere in the world, not just uniquely Chinese. Mm -hmm. Uh, My study, like uh, some other scholars in China and elsewhere, combine factors such as income, but not entirely income, wealth, occupation, education, and the social status to define this social economic group. Now, let me first look at some statistics by 2019 40 years after china began its economic reforms national gdp had grown 60 times larger and the per capita income 25 times higher this is certainly the middle, uh, the one of the, the the really economic miracles in our um, you know in contemporary uh, world now gdp per capita has increased from about 1000 US dollars uh, in 20 in 2001 20 years ago mm-hmm. uh, 1000 US dollars at that time to 10,500 in 2020 you know 10 times and that expected to reach 30000 according to chinese uh Lianghui, the the, uh, the national people's Con- national people's congress meeting last march uh, by 2035 uh uh, 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 it expected reached 30,000 US dollars. Now in Shanghai, per capita GDP, uh, today already exceeded 23,000 US dollars. And this is the data last year. Now let's also look at the in uh, an, an anecdotal way. A significant portion of the Chinese population now enjoy middle class lifestyle with pri- private property, uh, personal automobile, uh, improved healthcare, accumulation of financial assets, and the ability to afford overseas travel and the foreign education for their children. They live like middle class, consume like middle class, feel like middle class, and they are middle class. Now, they have already transformed uh, China's socioeconomic structure and global economy. So, so that's, the, that's the both in terms of definitional you know, a um, uh, uh, kind of approach, but also anecdotal, but also statistics to look at overall picture.
0: And as one facet of that, clearly, it, you've talked about. You know, the book talks about the return, uh, the impact of the returnees um, on Chinese society from. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, in, in terms of questions of. Uh, awareness of social justice and so forth. Uh, there are also uh, a substantial number of international students from China that have chosen to live at least part of their life in, in the West, including obviously in the United States. Um, how do you view the role of these Chinese immigrants in the West and their role in terms of their impact on, on China's views?
1: This is a very good question. Uh, Let me start with a number uh, again. Mm -hmm. Between uh, 1978, when China started to send students overseas uh, and 2019, this is before Mm COVID-19, about 6 million PRC citizens uh, studied abroad Mm -hmm. with a significant uh, uh, percentage going to the United States. In 2018 alone, over 600,000 Chinese students studied overseas. Making China the primary source of international students in other countries, the mm-hmm. largest one. Certainly, so it's also largest foreign study movement uh, in China's uh, you know, uh, history. Now, in the 2018 academic year, about 360,000 PRC students were enrolled in American schools, making the ninth uh, consecutive year that the Chinese students represent the largest proportion. Of foreign students in the United States. PRC students account for about the 33% of the total international students in the US uh, that year. Uh, in comparison, uh, India, uh, the number two country on the list, constituted 18%. It's almost China is uh, you know, double than the Indian uh, students. Yep. Now, based on a study conducted a decade ago, uh, this is still probably the latest uh, survey. Uh, survey uh, roughly one third of Chinese students returned home, one third immigrated to the other countries. Like in my case, I actually came as a, in the middle 1980s as a student as well. So, uh, you know, I belong to that group, immigrated to the other countries, in my case, United States, and became an American uh, citizen. And the one third was still in the study program. Uh, that was, again, about a decade ago, the survey. Now, this reflects the d- dynamism Uh, of globalization and the strong impact of international education. And let me also emphasize the foreign student um, uh, from China, this is also diverse a lot. And uh, uh, this kind of diversity, uh, pluralistic nature is very, very important. (coughs) Excuse me. So their views of the West are quite quite, uh, 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 different among themselves even. Now, uh, but uh, some studies including, a Canadian a scholar, your friend, David Zweiger study, and also my own study, usually students study in one particular country, they like this country. Certainly, it's accurate in my book. In that book, there's a survey uh, about the Chinese. They certainly uh, compare with other countries, uh, studying other countries, they like United States more. Uh, this is a pattern. This is also in some other studies, like David Zweiger's 10 years study, and uh, also Chinese studies. Mm-hmm. Now, but on the other hand, uh, they have a very sophisticated understanding of the United States. They will not say everything is United States. It's, a, it's a beautiful. It's a wonderful. They're sometimes uh, they're critical, but we should not jump to conclusion. This criticism is anti-America. No. Uh, just like w- w- we ourselves sometimes the critical of our political, political um, leaders, our, 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 you know, uh, problems, including, um, you know, systematic racism, uh, et cetera. So if we can be critical, why the, they cannot? So we shouldn't be careful not to jump to a conclusion. And also their views are also subject to change. When you see some of the anti-China crime uh, or, or hate uh, out of control, when you see a president talk about the uh, Chinese virus or gong Fu, when you think that these Chinese students are weapons of the Chinese Communist Party, they are spies, there's, uh, when a senator think the Chinese, China has the you uh, know, 5,000 years of stealing and cheating, how these people will react to mm-hmm. these kind of things, mm-hmm. right? So we do need to be careful. We do need to be sensitive, right, uh, uh, about these things. Otherwise, I mean, American generosity, uh, which, you know, is a very, uh, uh, was a prevail. I certainly benefit myself. Now it's in a crucial moment. We should continue this kind of uh, American generosity rather than, just to become so suspicious, lack of confidence, and etc. cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, partly because of COVID uh, and obviously its impact on the global economy, uh, but also, uh, you know, the changing features in the Chinese uh, uh, economy, for many average Chinese family purchasing property um, or vehicles or an apartment in major cities like Shanghai and Beijing have become uh, much more difficult uh, due to uh, limited quotas, high prices, and so forth. So owning a car and an apartment seem to be symbols of the middle class. Since achieving these goals is it gets increasingly difficult in these major cities and you know, obviously, you've done a lot of your examination in Shanghai. What impact do you think this brings on the middle class in China?
1: Well, uh, you also raise a good question. And uh, and also, your data is very interesting. It is true that for migrant worker, uh-huh. if you want to buy a property in Shanghai, it's impossible. There's some uh, joke, actually. I don't know whether... Well, it's appropriate to mention that the joke that right. those like that. If we are migrant worker from poor family, you want to buy a decent uh, property in Shanghai, you know, housing, you should start saving from Tang Dynasty <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: over a thousand years ago. Yes. Joke. 900, carry, a 900 carry, that, uh, you know, echo what you said. But yeah. on the other hand, I think we should be careful. Uh, about uh, the uh, generalization because there's some statistics okay. actually show something very interesting now um, it is true that uh, there's a restriction on cars and houses in tier one cities, but overall statistics reveal something different from what uh, um, you know you describe the number of the private vehicles in china increased from two thousand four two thousand i mean two hundred forty thousand. Let me say again, uh, 240,000 in 1990 mm-hmm. to 26 million, million. in 2009. 2009 it's a 12, oh. uh, 13 years okay. ago. Okay. Because that, I mentioned that year because that year was China become the world's leading automobile producer and the leading consumer uh, for the first time. Uh, so <laughs> 26 million in 2009. Now in 2020, China's private car ownership exceeded 200 million for the first time Mm -hmm. with over 40 private vehicles per every 100 households. So it's not a small number, 40% in urban China. I mean, this is astonishing, uh, the number. Now a total of 66 cities had more than 1 million vehicles of which 30 cities had more than 2 million vehicles and the 11 cities had more than 3 million. Now my book certainly documents all these details. Uh, uh, now, according to uh, a 2019 large scale survey of China's urban residents conducted by People's Bank of China, 96% of Chinese families in cities and the towns own property. Mm-hmm. This makes China uh, probably one of the, the, the high percentage in terms of property ownership. Um, uh, uh, in the world. Also for the study of the China, uh, Shanghai middle class, according to um, 2018 study, over 5 million households in Shanghai share this lifestyle, the middle class lifestyle, and could be considered middle class families. They constitute 91% of the total registered households of the city. Now, this study also indicate the average value of the household uh, assets of Shanghai residents was eight million yuan, roughly one point two million u s. dollars. This is average. ninety one percent owns um, a bit, uh, have that kind of middle class lifestyle. We do not know the exact number. again, these are the registered um you know residents, not including migrant workers, that uh, we just mentioned migrant uh, workers. So certainly there's a have and have not. Although these migrants probably have their house house, back at home, but it's different condition, much cheaper. I mean, you cannot compare with that. But the point is someone said that probably um, in every city, in New York City, (laughs) in San Francisco, it's also very difficult to move, right? Uh, uh, There's also a gap. This is quite common. So you see these kind of different uh, numbers. Of course, we talk about vehicles, there's some very expensive one, there's some less expensive one. But no matter what, China has a huge market. And uh, that's really the number is astonishing in that uh, regard. I remember when I grew up in China, there's a bicycle country as you visit China in the 1980s, 70s, you know, this is very much a bicycle city. And sometimes you wonder if you cannot park your bicycle, how could you park a car uh, in Chinese urban area? But it happened. And certainly there's a serious uh, environment uh, um, you know, implication, negative one. That's why China wanted to promote the electronic car and uh, environmental protection sure. become such a crucial issue. Yeah.
0: I do remember 1989, one of my first trips, I uh, was actually with my wife. We yeah. were, and I remember getting up in the morning, uh, it was in Shanghai
1: yeah.
0: and walking out onto the street and yeah. all you saw was a sea of bicycles. Yes. You know, there were some black cars, yeah. which were, of course, the officials. And then there were a, f- a few taxis as well. But it was a world populated with bicycles. That's right. That's right. But, and, of course, that's but, no longer the case that's right. it's, in, it's different in different. Shanghai. You yeah. met Shanghai, of course, obviously, the focus of your book. Yeah. It, it's a financial, cultural and political center for China. Uh, and uh, you uh, talk about uh, Chinese artists um, uh, and especially the, the Chinese artists in Shanghai. And uh, you, you ass- assess that they can provide a- an authentic, although abstract, representation of modern day China. Um, is that the case or do you think inc- the increasing censorship right, have, has limited the creativity of the artistic community in China in Shanghai? Sorry.
1: Well, um, let me first clarify. Uh, I do not claim in the book that the Chinese or Shanghai artists can provide an authentic representation mm-hmm. of modern-day China. But by definition, avant-garde art is ahead of our time avant-garde artists' work usually first directs at the core audience, um, then is gradually absorbed by others. Now, I actually uh, started looking at Shanghai avant-garde artists a couple of decades ago, mm-hmm. and it shocked me at that time, uh, you know, early on to see the strong critical um, views of this artists' uh, work. Not just to single out of the author- Chinese authorities, but also point to globalization and its side effects, economic and demographic disparities, environmental disasters and degradation, single minded profit syn- uh, seeking, and the Western hypocrisies and arrogance uh, for American hegemonic thinking. Now, this is really quite, uh, quite a uh, 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 you know, shocking for me. This is a, a couple of decades ago. Now we know there's a very strong component, uh, critical of the United States. Uh, uh, you know, about the American, you know, uh, want to c- contain China, American arrogance, or hypocrisy, etc. But uh, again, Almost two decades ago, the avant-garde artists in Shanghai already started to talk about these issues. The two chapters in my book actually documented and put a content analysis to show this kind of criticism. Now, of course, they are not a fan of the Chinese Communist Party either, but they, they think that the public, this is an easy target. They wanted to target even bigger, which is, a, I mean, United States sometimes, it sometimes it's rich entrepreneurs. Now, mm-hmm. over time, I come to see the general public itself absorbing Three dominant critical perspective. One is uh, uh, resentment regarding the Chinese Communist Party's authority. Two is a represent uh, resentment of the certain super rich entrepreneurs. You know, I don't want to give the name, you know, this famous uh, uh, business tycoons. And uh, rep- then uh, resentment against the United States, mm-hmm. uh, particularly uh, some politicians in the United States. Now, each of these dominant uh, powers from their perspective uh, gets criticized and the challenge uh, in some contexts uh, you know, by these artists and um, while also uh, celebrated or supported in other contexts. I and mean, it's a very uh, dynamic you know, shift over the years. Now, and many of these are reflections on China, uh, reflect China's you know, post-colonial uh, status mm-hmm. and it's globalized the present And also it's a complex societal negotiations. You see that the artists, uh, like intellectuals, sometimes engage in the kind of negotiation with the regime, with the power, no matter what uh, you call. Sometimes economic, sometimes political, sometimes ideological or cultural. Now, this sort of criticism first appears in avant-garde artists' work. Shanghai's artists have initiated an international dialogue um, the, uh, about the China's and the world's growing obsession with consumerism and about uh, the, uh, the the obsessions, you know, of, uh, these obsessions, the negative uh, effects. Of course, ironically, these artists themselves also benefit from consumerism and uh, and certainly they recall that, uh, that effect. Now, my research indi- indicates that the consumer-oriented middle-class culture and the globalization have not resulted in the homogeneousness um, or the death of the art on the contrary um, Shanghai's international engagement in the reform era uh, including artists uh, and uh, communication with outside the world or their seek for dialogue with the outside world has uh, injected a vital- vitality among the vanguard of artists of this city so this is a uh, uh, the way I answer your question. Yes, there's some political uh, censorship. Yes, there's some commercialism themselves, but I think the art survived, not only survive but continue find the audience and to be self-critical and sometimes critical uh, uh, domestically, sometimes internationally. As you probably know that the avant-garde artists, the Chinese avant-garde artists occupy a huge market globally. You know, you, you, you uh, I, I saw a study Uh, about uh, five to ten five years ago, a top 100, uh, actually the most paid uh, avant-garde artists in the world. I mean, 60% of them have the Chinese name. Many Hmm. of them come from cultural revolution. Now here I would say, sometimes we do not uh, see the very simplistic parallel, the repressive uh, uh, regime sometimes can produce a top-notch artists. Mm Right, this happened not only for China, but also for world history in many Western countries. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the Renaissance and et cetera. You know, this is uh, not just a simplistic parallel, but I think that uh, we should not uh, just say that uh, uh, what kind of a regime. And uh, that's explain the cultural revolution generation. Those people in, they are now in their 60s. Yes. Actually, it's the most talented and uh, in terms of the contribute. I can mention people like, uh, uh, the later Chen Yifei, Chen Danqing. Uh, these are not avant-garde, but also avant-garde like Xu Bing, uh, like Gu Wen Da, like uh, some mm-hmm. of the artists. I actually, my book focused on five artists. They are a little bit younger. Uh, uh, they are now currently in their 50s, not in their 60s. Uh, mm-hmm. They Really, um, but have their early years. They're they born in the Cultural Revolution, you know, the final years of Cultural Revolution, mm-hmm. but they still uh, experience some of the impact. And so now become a very dynamic force themselves.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, the The main argument, and you can reject it, but the, uh, as I see it, is that the middle, your view, the middle class can play a significant role in shaping and reshaping U.S.-China relations, right? Yeah. Um, I guess the question that will be posed, you know, out of the West and I'll I'll speak for for the west for the moment is that you know how likely is that when you see the current leadership continuing to centralize um uh, the party and uh largely control uh, uh behavior uh in in China at least you know kind of at the official level how how is that possible how can you um you know undertake that reshaping. Yeah. At the same time, you've got this rather uh, repressive um, uh, structure of government.
1: Well, Alan, what I mean by the middle class can play a significant role in shaping and reshaping U.S.-China relations is that the U.S.-China relations are not just a state-to-state relation, mm-hmm. but also people-to-people relation. This is what I mean. Uh, how middle class can shape and reshape U.S.-China Okay. Yep. Now, it is one thing to say that the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, monopolizes power, which is true, and also controls the media. Uh, there's no dispute about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's quite another thing to conclude that the CCP can control completely or control the behaviors and the worldview of the Chinese middle class in today's world. I don't think so because these middle-class members, they can travel around the world and their children can study in the West. So it's not really under absolute control. So mm-hmm. this is not like the Mao era, the you know, control is absolute. Mm-hmm. You even cannot read much. There's only four newspapers in the, in the country at that time. Mm-hmm. Right? So, but now there's a media exposure, there's social media, and you can, anytime you can make a phone call, to overseas, I think these are not blocked. Yes, WeChat sometimes you know uh, could be blocked, uh, but on the other hand, I mean travel usually is uh, open. Now, of course, this, from time to time they were target, they will not allow some uh, dissidents, but a small number. Uh, because in terms of foreign travel, you can see the statistics is huge.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Foreign students they can call their families, their relatives all the time, so it's not absolute control. Oh, so this is a different story. So I think that uh, we do need to put it in that uh, broad context. I think you will agree with me. Uh, uh, it's, uh, the nature start to change.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me. Yeah, I mean, I have so many questions, but uh, yeah. you know we have limited time. Let me at least point kind of one issue in con- in contemporary U.S.-China relations and more broadly uh, relations with the West. Uh, in the recent past, uh, Chinese diplomacy has become quite aggressive. Right. And uh, what they what they refer to it as wolf warrior diplomacy, which is I take it based on a number of movies that were done um, in uh, a few years ago in, in China. Um, it, it's been used against Australia. It's been used against Canada uh, and the U.S., of course, and and others. You know, what's your assessment? What's the point? Uh, of uh, the of Chinese diplomacy uh, veering so dramatically uh, towards an aggressive behavior?
1: Well, uh, I'm glad you raised that uh, question. I think this is related to uh, which perspective we should look. I think it's better to understand both perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Now
1: from US perspective, Western perspective, China's increasingly assertive conduct both in the region and uh, on the world stage, including what you mentioned the, the pressure campaign against Taiwan, economic cohesion against Australia and mm-hmm. territory um, you know uh, the territory, uh sanctions um, targeting individuals and the institutions in North America and Europe has yep. caused a serious concern in the. US and the allied countries. But we should also understand how the Chinese side perceives. from a Chinese perspective, Many of the Biden administrations, not to mention the uh, early Trump administration, the Trump administration want to destroy China in the same way they uh, the US destroyed the Soviet Union. Now, uh, for many Chinese uh, believe that the uh, Biden administration's recent move um, indicate that a new anti-China Cold War is imminent. Uh, These actions include restructuring global industrial and supply chains, Initiate the so-called chip chip um, uh, called a chip uh, alliance or semiconductor industrial alliance. Join like-minded countries to boycott uh, Chinese products and the Chinese-sponsored events because of human rights issues. Urging EU countries to reconsider EU-China comprehensive agreement on investment and hosting the democracy summit at the White House and also recent, uh, you know, ongoing the the. The G7 the, the, the meetings targeting China. You can see, I mean, this is a mutually reinforced fear, largely based on different perspectives. Now, I'm not, I want to give a value judgment um, because, but I just want to point out different sides, and both sides have a completely different perspective. But in my view, they also involve some of the mutually reinforced fear lead the, the, the competition uh, really uh, spiral out of control uh, at this moment.
0: Well, then let me end with this because as you're aware, uh, Xi Jinping quite recently uh, told senior communist party officials that it was important to present an image of credible, uh, this, is, this is a quote uh, translated obviously, a uh, credible, lovable, and respectable China, right? Yeah. Uh, so the question, you know, and this was, I take it, I think it was made uh, to the Politburo, actually. Yes. Uh, but obviously it was made public. doesn't have to be, but it was made public. Uh, so the question is, what, you know, is this a, a potentially a rethinking or a nuancing of Chinese diplomacy, which has been... So you know, so criticized uh, over the last over the last few months and and, and indeed years.
1: Well, the, my answer is no.
0: no. Uh,
1: this is uh, what the Western politicians have been quite familiar in their foreign policy, knowing as the carrot and the stick. Both, I, I mean, okay. uh, Beijing decides to play a hardball. In my view, um, uh, Beijing believes that China has more leverage in the current global economic landscape with this huge domestic market and its relatively social political stability. Beijing also believes that it will take a long time for the United States to recover from COVID-19, racial and political divides, economic structure problems, and a serious domestic economic disparity. Mm-hmm. And they believe that the Biden, uh, President Biden is more under the time pressure than Beijing because the U.S. midterm election and the sure. two, uh, 2024 election. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not clear which party will win. Mm-hmm. And uh, also from Beijing's perspective, I mean, even uh, you wanted to uh, cooperate with the United States, but it, uh, the, the Biden's emphasis on Xinjiang and Hong Kong, and uh, in terms of real support of, uh, uh, you know, Taiwan's uh, kind of uh, 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 protect the Taiwan, are uh, the issues that are uh, not for negotiation. From Beijing's perspective, so that explain, I think that uh, you can see Beijing will continue to play hardball. Now you talk about uh, the lovable or these kind of things. This is uh, the Beijing's uh, uh, you know approach. This is not entirely new, and certainly they understand there's a lot. Uh, they don't want to see uh, the kind of uh, Western coalition against China. They also want to make some friends. Now also, I don't know. It's, a, it's a, you probably noticed that the people now the media talk a lot about the elephants, like, uh, you know, the, from uh, from Yunnan and around the country. But uh, I mean, in our media, we did not see that much, right? But it sounds like uh, this is a lovable picture. But, uh, I think that uh, certainly it's a very simplistic on, on part of China. But uh, this is my reading. I think, uh, um, uh, of course, there's a, a need for China to change its image from their perspective. But at the same time, uh, if my assessment is correct, we probably still will see this kind of uh, toughness on the China part. But China sees this as a defensive, but we see it as aggressive.
0: So I take it, and this is the last question, unfortunately, that um, that what you've got here, I I take it that the mechanism of greatest concern to you is this tit-for-tat kind of uh, diplomacy and foreign policy that now seems to govern the relationship between uh, China and the West?
1: Well, um, that's the unfortunate. But the point is, I think that uh, um, this is not like Cold War scenario. It's a far more right. complicated. And uh, actually, um, as uh, Dr. Kissinger argues, which I share, this is actually, it's a unique moment. China and the United States, two superpowers, are almost equally powerful. No country can defeat the other. And uh, if we wanted to have the, the total victory, that's itself is very, very dangerous. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, this will lead to a very dangerous scenario, particularly in the time of AI. So I think that we it requires the mindset mindset change. So we should not be driven by fear should not be driven by all the negativities about the others, by demonize others, but we should instead uh, driven by hope, by recognition of commonalities between Chinese people and American people, and the shared interest, whether it be uh, peace or stability of the economic and financial system, and also by reshaping engagement and return to cooperation.
0: Well, thank you, Chung Li, for taking this time to be with us. That's very interesting. I have so many other questions, uh, but I I know your time is valuable, so I won't continue. But thank you indeed uh, for spending this time with us and for describing in part your book also, which has been great.
1: Thank you for having me.